I consciously knew that that was it. Uh, I took my last breath, said my last thought, and died. You know, I, I didn't see like a white light. I wasn't floating above my body. N nothing like that. Um, it literally just kind of faded to black at the end as I was taking that last breath. However, what I did experience, I think, was even maybe more profound because I know in that last breath, I was still conscious. I was still very aware of what was happening. This is a Reboots Rough Cuts episode, edited, mixed, and mastered by Mikhail Kozenkov. I'm Tracy Wenchel, and this special series has been inspired by a, a conversation with Mikhail and a group of fellow podcasters, during which I expressed frustration and concern about a backlog of beautiful stories that have been growing metaphorical dust on my hard drive, because I just hadn't gotten around to editing them and publishing them yet. Mikhail offered to help me clear the backlog and to crank out as many episodes as possible by the close of 2018. And this is one of those dozen interviews that will most certainly bring hope to many listeners, maybe even you. Before we dig into the conversation, a little more about my partner on this series. Mikhail manages ChristianAudioDebates.com. It's a website devoted to turning into podcasts scholarly debates between Christian apologists and atheists, skeptics, Muslims, etc. Mikhail finds recordings, a lot of times on YouTube, of debates between Christian scholars and atheist scholars, or between Christian apologists and Muslim apologists. And then he extracts the audio from those debates, he polishes and cleans up the audio, and then turns the debates into podcasts. Pretty interesting stuff. Now, if you're a podcaster who is overwhelmed with post-production, or maybe you're not sure how to edit your own podcast, and you want a personal step-by-step walk-through the editing and mixing process, or maybe you just want your podcast to sound the very best it can and not have to worry about the editing stage at all, you're going to want to get in touch with my friend Mikhail. Here's how you get in touch with him. It's podcastsoundfixer at gmail.com. We'll have a link in the show notes. Hey there, you're dialed into Reboots, featuring stories about people who have been forced to start over in life or in business, all walks of life, anonymous or named, high profile or low down, stories with heart, soul, and grit. Because knowing and sharing our stories is essential for living a life of joy, experiencing healthy relationships, and impacting the world around us in a positive way. Here's your host, Tracy Winchell. Reboots episode R034 features author, featured TED Talk speaker, and change agent Joshua Mance. Josh is also a war veteran. And through Josh's story, this November 2018, the Reboots podcast honors all veterans. And we remember Staff Sergeant Marlon Harper, who was killed in action serving in Iraq with Josh. Here's the thing about Josh's story that is vastly different from most who have served downrange. Josh was shot by a sniper in Iraq 
and he flatlined for 15 minutes, Josh was dead. Today, Josh is CEO of Asymmetric Mind, a firm heavily engaged in corporate and government training, as well as clinical training for behavioral health providers who work with the military and first responder communities. Now, the idea is to talk openly about the impact of trauma and learning to live with the lasting impacts of witnessing violence, experiencing life-threatening situations, and being forced to make instant choices about life and death, and living with the public scrutiny and consequences of those choices. Here's Josh's story. Hey, Josh, thanks for inviting us into your life today. I appreciate your time. Hey, thank you, Tracy. It's great to be here. You have a heck of a story, and I'm going to get into that really quick. I don't, I don't want to miss words a lot, but the first thing I want to know is where you share your story and why. You know, I've, um, I'm all over the world speaking about psychological trauma and helping people integrate adverse experiences into their lives. And I do that because I've, I've consistently seen that there's, uh, wherever we go, there's still a relatively large stigma surrounding psychological health. And, and more importantly, this concept of, of what trauma really is, is widely misunderstood and, and oversimplified in a lot of ways. So the reason I share this is to help people begin to, to recognize and validate the true source of their emotional pain so they can begin to integrate it into their lives and, and transform. I'm going to break another rule here, Josh, on my own show. A, a good storyteller never hits the spoiler right off the top, only I'm getting ready to break that rule. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. You were shot and killed in Iraq. You were revived. And four months later, you returned to combat. That is, that is correct. Holy moly. Yep. So this is about 10 years ago, April 2007, uh, in Baghdad. You know, was engaged by an enemy sniper, and the bullet actually severed my femoral artery uh, in my upper right leg, uh, causing me to flatline for a full 15 minutes before being miraculously revived by an expert medical team. And somehow, you know, to, to put that into perspective, 15 minutes is a very long time to be dead. <laughs> you know, a, a lot of times the, the general medical standard where, where a lot of physicians will call it on a patient who, who flatlines is around the six minute mark. And the reason for that is that's usually the point when catastrophic brain damage starts to set in. Um, yet this medical team, uh, American medical team in, in Baghdad just threw out all the odds and, and, uh, really pulled off a miracle. I, I woke up from the incident with no trace of brain damage, full recollection of the event, and uh, was fortunate enough to, to keep uh, my leg, which was on the verge of being amputated. So very, very fortunate across the board. One of the accounts that you've shared about your story is that you sort of felt yourself dying. What was that like? Yeah, you, you know, it's amazing what the body does in, in cases of physical trauma like this, from the point I was shot to the point that I took my last breath, 
uh, was roughly a 30-minute period. You know, the medic on the ground was able to apply a tourniquet uh, right away, which was enough to keep me conscious, keep me alive. And then I was I was able to get to the medical station pretty quickly, uh, which was also another major factor in my survival. But I went through this progression of symptoms. You know, initially, when, when I was first shot, it, 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 the body shuts down every system that it doesn't need uh, and directs all that energy towards the systems it does need for survival. Right. And because of that, some of the things we experience are quite bizarre. You know, it was slow motion time, fast motion time, uh, auditory distortion, and that I could only hear the muted shot of the sniper rifle, my own voice calling for a medic. And then, you know, as I was being transported to the base, the only pain that I experienced, because my body was physically was was basically in shock, uh, although my mind was crystal clear. It, it was this bizarre separation of mind and body in, in many ways, but I felt no physical pain. The only sort of pain that I did feel was more of an anaerobic pain, as if we're running wind sprints around a track and for some reason can't stop, right? That, that's kind of what it felt like. And the reason for that is when we're dying of blood loss, we're essentially suffocating, right? There's no oxygen being delivered. And uh, what the body will actually do is, is, is attempt to pull the remaining blood it has into the chest cavity to protect the vital organs. Uh, and towards the end, I could actually feel that happening. You know, the, the blood started to creep out of my legs and my extremities. And as all the blood left, they cramped up and became numb. And uh, ultimately, when that feeling hit my chest, I consciously knew that that was it. Uh, I took my last breath, said my last thought and died. Obviously, the big question here is, is did I see anything? What happened? Right. <laughs> and and the, right, pretty interesting answer to that. I didn't see like a white light. I wasn't floating above my body. Nothing like that. Um, it literally just just kind of faded to black at the end as I was taking that last breath. However, what I did experience, I think, was even maybe more profound because I know in that last breath I was still conscious. I was still very aware of what was happening. The only way that I can describe that feeling, that transition from life to death, was a complete sense of surrender to something much greater than ourselves. And through that surrender just came an overwhelming sense of peace. It was every good, every bad, every positive, every negative, all of it just fell away. And it, it felt almost as if the spirit is part of everything and nothing at the same time. Wow. So, you know, the moment of my death was the most peaceful experience of my life. Wow. So you get transported, you spend four months recovering, and you're just this miracle guy. What kind of treatment did you get beyond the physical treatment, just for your, your physical injuries? Well, it's actually a really complicated question. It is. <laughs> that sort of has a lot of layers to it. And really sets the conditions for everything that happened afterwards. But physically, at the time, I received the best medical treatment in the world at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. I was very fortunate. You know, the first question that I asked the surgeon is, while I was in intensive care, is when can I get back to Baghdad? When can I get back to my team? And that's not uncommon. There's another soldier who was a triple amputee in the room next to me who that was his first question, too. So there's just this incredible drive to get back to your team, which is a very positive thing. It's a very powerful thing. 
But if it goes too far, it can also be a very destructive thing if it turns into the, a, a sense of guilt, right, for not being there. The bottom line is while I received phenomenal physical care and, and was able to snap back and make this incredible recovery and, and go back to Baghdad, lots of positives about that. But what I didn't realize until almost 10 years later was that there was a lot more driving me to go back than just a desire to get back to my team, a desire to lead. And in many ways, I, I was driven by guilt, a profound sense of guilt and shame. You know, for example, it's not as if every minute on the flight home, right, was a minute closer to my family, a minute closer to home. It was a minute farther away from my team, right? And despite getting phenomenal physical care at Walter Reed, th that hospital is a very difficult place to be emotionally, right? Simply for the fact that that's, that's where most of the severely wounded service members are evacuated to. You're seeing the impact it has on them. You're see, you know, amputees, burn victims, uh, the impacts that it has on their families. And, you know, th the image that I will always remember is walking around a corner. I was on crutches and saw this beautiful young girl in her early 20s pushing around her new double amputee fiance in a wheelchair. And it's, it's an image that just riveted me. So, so part of the guilt that I was experiencing on a really deep level was a guilt in my ability to heal when others couldn't, right? Coupled with a guilt of not being with my team downrange, coupled with the fact that uh, the same bullet that shot me also killed one of my non-commissioned officers, Staff Sergeant Marlon Harper, at the same time, right? Guilt is incredibly complex, uh, highly misunderstood. It's kind of what I focus on uh, predominantly today is the, are these moral wounds that we experience in the face of trauma. And, and you know, successfully uncovering that and, and beginning to process it was, was truly a very dangerous 10-year journey, despite excelling in my career the whole time, right? There, there's a very deep internal void that I was experiencing that I couldn't pin down until I really came to that understanding. So four months later, you're headed back to, to your unit. And unpacking all of that, maybe I can synthesize this a little bit. Maybe we can't. In retrospect, do you think you, you wanted to go back to your unit or you needed to go back to your unit in that moment? Great question. I, I think it, it truly was a mix of both, but I was only consciously aware of wanting to go back, right? I did not understand uh, what was driving the need to go back. And, and that's a pretty profound uh, question that you just asked because it relates to many of the emotional spirals that I had in, in the years that followed, right? Many of the behaviors that I was exhibiting that looked very positive on the surface, done with all the best of intentions but ended up being quite destructive because of the place it was emanating from. Was I doing those things because I wanted to, or was I doing it because I needed to? The former is sustainable, the latter is self-destructive, right? And, and that was a truly transformative moment when I realized that. Walk me through the moment that you reunited with your team. What was that like? Phenomenal. And, and I mean, it, it, there, there's obviously like I'm speaking a little bit, paradoxically here because there are two sides to this coin. Uh, I don't regret going back. A and there was a lot of positive things about it. 
you know, just one, it kind of gave me the confidence to that I could get back on the horse and still perform my job as an infantry officer, even though subtle signs were emerging <laughs> that I that I kind of refused to recognize. But the impact that it had on the team was was just incredible. There's there's always a bond with with any of us who deploy in extreme combat situations, right? But but um, everyone there knew that I didn't need to go back. Uh, people were pushing me to get out of the military, you know, could have got out of the hundred percent disability for the rest of my life back then if I wanted to. And, and that, that wasn't even the closest thing in my mind, uh, like, like many service members, but just a huge impact on the morale. And, and you could just tell how much it meant to the team that I, I was able to come back to them. The, the other great moment though, and, and truly one of the best days of my life is that I learned when I got back that the medical team who saved me, the team who pulled off this miracle, was still there. You know, they were part of a different unit, so I didn't even know that they'd still be there. As soon as we learned that, we set up a surprise visit, uh, went out to their base again, and uh, walked through the door, and it was like seeing a ghost. You know, they, uh, <laughs> the brigade surgeon, you know, after he yelled at me <laughs> for coming back so soon, gave me a big hug. Right. And uh, it, it was interesting because that that team, you know, which was mostly composed of 18, 19 year olds, young soldiers, right, led by a brigade surgeon. They were so proud of what they pulled off that they actually had my medical records hanging on the wall as a reminder of what they were capable of. This is this is a, a huge facet of what I speak to today is this this idea that trauma does not discriminate. Right. It comes in many shapes and forms and impacts all of us from every walk of life. And, you know, it can be very easy for us as human beings to subconsciously compare ourselves to other people. Or right? totally consciously. Or totally consciously. Guilty. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and this is the interesting thing, right? Like part of the challenge of carrying this near-death experience, this story, is that it to many people, it seems like it's the holy grail of trauma. You know, how can it get any worse than that? A lot of people think, right? And and a reaction that I got long ago in the speaking circuit was people would always come up to me after a talk and say, Josh, I've never been through anything like what you've been through, but dot, dot, dot. And then they'd finish their story. And and I know they were just trying to be humble, but, but internally, that was the last thing that, that I wanted. Right. I, I, and it took years of crafting this talk to, to get it to the point where people can understand the relativity of, of trauma. Right. To me, that near death experience was truly the easy part. Right. Everything that followed the, the divorce, living with Crohn's disease, incurable disease and chronic pain, financial distress, the, the list goes on. The things that you and I experience day to day, you know, traumatic loss, there's no need for bravado when it comes to uh, healing ourselves, right? When it comes to transformation, your pain, your experiences are just as real and just as valid as mine. The medical team is a good example of that, <laughs> right? In the span of that one year, they saw uh, over 350 severe trauma cases. And this applies to ER teams all over the country, you know, ER nurses, whatever. But the, the challenge with them is sometimes these folks, these teams, they will pull off miracles. They'll get a faint pulse back. In the, and what do they do? They rush them to the next echelon of care, right? They stabilize and get to the next echelon of care. 
and often never get to see the results of their work, right? So they never get that validation that what they did was the right thing. It opens the door to hindsight bias, the could have, should have, would have. And that, that can have a profound effect on the human psyche over time, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the bottom line is, is psychological trauma is very complex. It's, it's a matter of having the courage to take that inward journey and look at ourselves, sometimes at the deepest, darkest corners of our soul, and then having the courage to fight our way back out. Mm-hmm. So I want to clarify something just to be sure kind of before we move on a little bit. Are you saying that it's very uncomfortable for you to be the only person in the room who has died and come back? No, no, I'm not uncomfortable with that. It's just my desire has always been to not just tell a war story. Like I, I could do that all day long. <laughs> That's easy, right? I wanted to leverage this experience to be able to make a positive difference in the lives of other people. And and the the point is, it's actually incredibly challenging to do that in a way where it doesn't sort of isolate anyone or, or inadvertently intimidate anyone or minimize their own experiences. Okay. Love it. So thanks for clarifying that, that, that helps us then pivot to kind of the whole point of reboots, which is offering hope to people um, who have endured, who are in the midst of, of a major, reboot in their lives and often that presents itself as trauma and the whole point of telling stories is so that the people listening to it enduring something can say that guy's been through what i'm going through and he's still here so yeah you've got a quote i think i saw it on your website creativity is the inverse of trauma tell me what that means well you know what is psychological trauma (laughs) first like what do i mean by that right and i I define it quite broadly. Trauma is the situations or events in our lives that fundamentally disrupt the way we believe the world should work. And and when our perceptions of the world get flipped upside down, it can start to compromise the way we feel about ourselves and who we are as people. One of the markers of trauma is that it leaves us trapped in the past. We we think, feel, and act in a way where, where we are either still responding to that traumatic experience or, or that it's still driving our behavior in, in some ways, often below our level of consciousness, right, in, in ways that we don't even realize or understand. The reverse of that, the inverse of that is creativity. It's innovation, right? If I am locked in my past constructs of the world, right, then I need to find a way to disrupt that feedback loop so that I can continue to move forward in, in life free and clear of it, right? Now, that comes down in many ways, and this is this is why I think your, your podcast is really unique here, the topic, right? Think of it in terms of being able to integrate the experience into our lives. What does the past mean for us now? <laughs> and a definitive moment in this for me is I realized that I had to accept the death of my old self before I could learn to fully live in the present moment. And I don't mean the near-death experience. No, I get it. Yeah. It's not that I'm forgetting about the old self. I'm not forgetting about the past. But what I have done is I've accepted the integration of it into my life right now. 
I drive meaning in it so that I'm not trying to fit who I am now into my past. <laughs> so it's the reverse of that. Yeah, you don't you don't want this experience that you're sharing with us to be your entire identity, the guy who died and came back. Well, look at it this way. The um and this doesn't just apply to near death experiences. Let's let's think of this in terms of peak experiences throughout our lives. Experiences that sort of open the door to a heightened level of awareness or a heightened level of consciousness, right? True perspective changing events. That could be near death, that could be psychological trauma, that could be profound dreams, it could be rites of passage, which still exist in many cultures. You know, even basic training is kind of a rite of passage that helps people transcend, at least to some degree, right? Certain psychedelic experiences, when they're done correctly, can have similar effects. So if all these things are wrapped in the category of peak experiences, the misconception about trauma, adversity, and, and things like this, is that transformation occurs because of that experience, that growth occurs because of the past. But in actuality, transformation cannot occur until some point in the future, some point after that event, only upon which that the meaning of the event is integrated to our lives in the present moment. The bottom line is, for a, a lot of people struggle with this, right? I, I did, and I didn't even know it. It's like, what do you do after you die for 15 minutes? Who are you now? <laughs> you know, and what I was doing is I was trying to fit that I, because I didn't know what to do with that experience. I was still living as if I was a person who hadn't been through something like that. You know, I was trying to kind of fit who I am now into the mold of the past. And with this with this new experience, this new perspective sort of floating out there and not really knowing what to do with it. Mm. So, so, so the transformative journey what was a matter of ultimately learning to integrate that, to accept it, to internalize it, which then led to a much stronger version of myself. And your mission in life right now is to help other people find meaning in the trauma of their lives through darker souls. Yeah. So, so the book, right? The, yeah. the, the title of the book, The Beauty of a Darker Soul, it's designed to take people on a journey of which they can look at through their own lens and apply to their own lives, hopefully, in order to first recognize and validate the true source of their pain. The reason that that's so important <laughs> is that many of us skip over that step. Many of us skip over the step of validating what we've actually experienced. And we don't do that intentionally or maliciously. The point is that I, I truly believe that a lot of people struggle so much with their past because they don't even know where to look for the true root cause of the issue. We're, we're dealing with ultra complex things here like shame and guilt and powerlessness and betrayal, whereas what society tells us is traumatic. And I'm not minimizing these things, right? But they're they're more of the big shiny objects, right? like near-death experience, or, or that I lost Staff Sergeant Marlon Harper that day, or, or, or that I was in a, a, a terrible car accident. The point is, like, my healing process was delayed for almost a decade because the emotional void that I was experiencing, I didn't know where to point to the root cause of that, right? So, so what did I do is I diverted to the most obvious thing I could point to, which is, well, I guess this near-death experience really did impact me. 
I, I, I guess it, it has to be because of that. And the, the problem with that is when I was inaccurately, I was chasing a rabbit down the wrong hole. <laughs> and, and meanwhile, this, these seeds of guilt and shame continue to grow inside of my mind, inside of the soul, right? Because I wasn't pinpointing the root cause of it. So, so the intention with the book, with the work that I do today is to help people really uncover what that actually means to them. And, and maybe up, open up some new perspectives in terms of uh, how they look at themselves now and, and through the lens of their past. So I've got a couple of questions surrounding that. The first one is you talk about the moral, ethical, and spiritual implications of trauma. What, is that, what does that mean? Well, so, so there's, there's really three elements of trauma in general. What most people assume trauma to be, and, and this is certainly valid, and it's valid for probably the majority of people, are situations that cause a personal threat to one's own life. So that could be a car accident, that could be an assault, that could be a rape, that could be getting shot, right? It could be a multitude of different singular events that, that cause a life threat. But the other categories of this, as we were kind of speaking of before the podcast, right, include traumatic loss, meaning the people close to us that we lose in our lives and can't make meaning of it, or how do we carry on? And the other is moral injury, the moral, ethical, spiritual implications. And these are things like guilt, powerlessness, shame, betrayal. The reason my focal point, I mean, and I, I try to do my best to focus on all of those, right, but, but I'm really interested in, in moral injury because... In the face of extreme adversity, in the face of trauma, we often face irresolvable moral dilemmas, irresolvable moral dilemmas, where we don't necessarily know what the implications of our actions will be, depending on the choice that we make in the time. And, and some of those choices happen automatically below our level of consciousness because our body's acting in terms of survival. Yet when we view those experiences in retrospect, we have a tendency to fault ourselves and blame ourselves for the decisions we made that occurred in the span of milliseconds. It's, it's very common for people to feel guilt after experiences, even though to an outsider, it might seem completely irrational and unwarranted. But in that person's mind, I should have done something differently. I could have fought harder. I could have fought off the attacker. I, you know, I, I could have made a... a I could have taken a different action to save my friend. You know, th there's there's really kind of an endless, endless pool of moral windows that can be opened up in those contexts. And uh, that's where, you know, it kind of takes a lot of introspection and deep thought to really recognize the impact that those have on us. I'm going to chase another rabbit right here before I come back to the other question. Um, moral dilemmas and, and the way you talk about that. It is so easy for our nation to become outraged by a body camera on a police officer or a cell phone video of, of an officer-involved shooting. And you know what? There are some that, to me, look like no-brainers mm -hmm. in terms of both sides. I can see that some of these victims are victims they're not perpetrators, and that the situation could be handled differently. But I'm doing so behind a screen. Mm 
Yep. When I talk to my friends who are in law enforcement, I am blessed because every law enforcement officer I know would never do something intentionally. And I've talked to guys who have had to make that decision. Do I go home for sure and live with this the rest of my life or what? You've probably made the decision. I've never been forced to make a decision like that. And in that moment, that police officer doesn't have the hindsight of replaying it over and over again in his mind. Conversely, the fella or the woman who's scared of the approach of a police officer, either culturally or because maybe they're guilty of something else, but they don't have a gun right now, same thing applies for them. How is it that we help these women and men who step into the breach to provide protection, keep them healthy so that they make the best decision possible? And then how the heck do we as civilians get the heck out of the way and let the judicial process do what it's got to do? Right. It's an excellent example of a moral dilemma as a, a shoot, no shoot scenario, right? There, there's a couple of things to understand here. First is that the the human brain is the most complex organism that we currently know of that exists in the universe. It is geared towards survival. There's basically three areas of the brain that, that have de developed and evolved over time. That starts with one area of the brain called the reptilian brain, which is the oldest system of our human brain. Then it moves up into the limbic system, which is kind of considered to be the emotional brain. And then it moves up into the cerebral cortex, which is considered to be the thinking brain or the cognitive brain. The interesting thing is that, that every second, right, all the stimuli around you, all your senses, all of it, it's being directed towards the limbic system right now as we speak. And the limbic system is basically taking all of that data that it receives and it's creating a map, a snapshot of the world of what you're experiencing in the moment. And what, what the limbic system this does is it sends that map simultaneously in two separate directions. First, it sends it down deeper into the limbic system to an area called the amygdala. And the amygdala kind of acts as the fire alarm. If that map doesn't match up with our prior constructs of the world, if it's perceived as a threat, the amygdala launches the body into action. This is what happened when I got shot. This is what happens to police officers when they're in a life or death situation, a shoot, no shoot scenario. Um, this is what happens to people in trauma. This is our classic fight, flight, freeze kind of response. The crucial thing to understand is that these simultaneous pathways, right? I, I mentioned that map gets sent in two directions. One, it goes down to the, the amygdala, right? Two, it goes up into the cerebral cortex, the thinking mind, the rational brain. The difference is the pathway to the emotional brain works slightly faster than the pathway to the cognitive brain. <laughs> this means that in a crisis scenario, in a, in a scenario where our lives or those we're close to are threatened, that our bodies are already taking action based on the constructs that are presented to us in comparison to the past before our minds even have an opportunity to catch up. So it's really important to understand that these instinctual responses are valid. And on, on both sides of a situation like that. Yep. Yeah, yeah. On both sides of a situation. 
So this is why police officers and military personnel go through such extensive training to, to really reshape their contracts of the world before they get into situations like that. But in some cases where it's it's dark outside, the, the, the person who's perceived to be a assailant might be carrying something that that resembles a weapon or a gun. Now this dilemma starts to occur inside the mind of the officer, right? Do I protect myself and go home to the family, which honestly is going to be the officer's last concern? Do I protect my team members, which is a much greater concern, or do I protect the innocent people around me, which is also a much greater concern, right? Again, I, I kind of go back to this concept. The, the way that the way that many people view trauma is through this perception of personal life threat, a threat to one's own life. And in the context of this police shooting, certainly the officer's life is at stake here. There's no question about that. Yet what we under, what we need to understand about the service professions, especially first responders, police officers, military personnel, is that we care far less about what happens to us personally and far more about what happens to our teammates and the people that we're sworn to protect. So police officers, military personnel will unquestionably sacrifice themselves uh, to protect someone else because an injury or harm to somebody else does far greater damage to us emotionally than anything that can happen to us personally. And the, the, the point is that, that these situations are incredibly complex. There's a lot happening in the span of a couple seconds you know, sometimes milliseconds. And, and um, the challenge emotionally afterwards, cognitively afterwards, is, is that the human tendency towards hindsight bias. And hindsight bias is really powerful. It's almost impossible to avoid, right? Our brains work by trying to connect the dots of the past so we can learn from it. And the problem with hindsight bias and what that really means is that we are applying the information that we have today to the incomplete information we had in the past. And that can open up the door for a lot of false pathways, a lot of self-blame, a lot of self-doubt that, that may be unwarranted, right? Because we never really know. What if the officer doesn't shoot and then that person engages him or his teammates and they get killed? What if the officer does engage, right? And, and it ends up being an innocent person. You know, the, these, these decisions happen so quickly that it's it's almost impossible to know the outcome many times in the moment. So so one of the paradoxes of police work, one of the paradoxes of uh, military service, especially today in the context of the modern operating environment, is that in situations like that, we have to inherently place more, far more risk upon ourselves in order to satisfy the needs of the environment that we're serving within. And then the true internal damage is very few police officers I know got into law enforcement so that they could take someone's life, no matter what color, no matter what the perpetrator has done wrong, their job is to serve. And so now then you're dealing with another trauma of taking a human life instead of protecting a human life. And all too often, society heaps guilt upon shame. And now then, the person who dedicated his or her life to service is in a re legal pickle and a, and a real mess. Right. And again, the legal system, blame from others, there's a multitude of other factors that 
increase the emotional damage uh, to someone after an event like this. Right, lots of factors that contribute to the growth of guilt, the growth of shame. This is why, like, especially in a therapeutic context, uh, when we look at these experiences and start to resolve them, it's very important to put the situation, the totality of the situation, back into context. That that's one of the the ways to defend against hindsight bias to start to overcome it. Let's revisit all of the factors that were in play at that moment. <laughs> Because we, we couldn't have made a decision in many, many of these cases. We can't make a decision back then that was 100% accurate regardless. Right. Right. So, but, but our tendency, if, if we leave that unchecked, if we leave that unresolved, our tendency absolutely is to self-blame. Right. Especially when we get drugged through a big legal battle, when, when we get suspended, when we, you know, in, in certain cases that's warranted. Right. Yep. But in most of the cases it's not. Or it's at least... It can be very, it can be a very damaging process uh, to the officer or military soldier that's involved, particularly when there's no effort to emotionally resolve and process that experience. All right, now I'm going to get back to the other train of thought. <laughs> Thanks for going with me. So, how does Darker Souls LLC help people who are dealing with all of these types of trauma, especially like you're talking about here, a moral dilemma. How specifically do you help people through moments like this? Yeah. Well, one of my primary focuses right now, and again, th this making this move to actually start this organization was uh, is, is still a relatively new one. I'm still in startup mode. But the bulk of what I do right now is really focusing on the reduction of stigma. It's it's focused on validation and giving people permission. And predominantly right now, until we get to phase two, which is right around the corner, but right now that involves a lot of speaking engagements, uh, going around to veterans organizations, police departments, corporate offices, right, Wh whatever it is, and giving permission and validation, right, which truly is step one of trauma treatment. So that's really important and that will continue on top of everything else that's about to come here. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about, really, mental health. We just haven't put that label on it so much. Do you have a, a decision to build or to do a, a daily habit that sort of keeps you focused on continuing your progression of who you are and who you're going to be? It's, it's really important to control what we can control. <laughs> especially when we're dealing with levels of depression and anxiety and trauma, you know, those experiences by design leave us feeling as if we're not in control of anything. So, so it's, it's very important to maintain a daily practice, whether it's incredibly small or, or incredibly robust, but maintaining that daily practice is, is something that's absolutely crucial to, to sustainment and continued growth. There are a couple things, regardless of the circumstances that we're in, regardless of what we're facing, that we almost always have direct control over or can impact. And that includes the big four. It includes diet. It includes exercise, uh, which then influences number three, sleeping patterns and stress reduction. Diet, exercise, sleep, stress reduction. If we can structure our lives in a way that enhances those We've already taken a first step towards regaining control of our lives, right, and continuing to grow. 
Why is that important? It's because, you know, for example, for me, I'm almost always up at 5 a.m. every day. I typically start that day with a uh, some type of a high-intensity workout. I close it with a very intentional yoga session, even if it's a couple minutes. And then I do a, sh- a short round of breath work and dive into some type of spiritual reading, even if it's a paragraph. Uh, sometimes that's philosophy, sometimes it's spirituality, whatever it is that, that just keeps that momentum going. And the point is, by doing that consistently, it really gives us the opportunity to win the day, to take control of our day. Why do I get up at 5 a.m.? Because that's the only time where I can virtually guarantee that I can protect that time. If I wait till the afternoon, I, I have a tendency to you know, get distracted and do other things, right? So, so that's really, really important. To me personally, and, and a lot of the people that I interact with fully, fully support that as well. We've talked a lot about this. I just, I'm going to ask you to, to synthesize it just a little bit, maybe rephrase it. What good in your life today exists that otherwise wouldn't have existed but for this darkness in your life? Oh, man. <laughs> Everything. I don't regret any experience that I've ever been through. Because it, all of them have served to shape the person who I am today. There's a uh, world-renowned psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor named Viktor Frankl who says in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, that without suffering and death, human life cannot be complete. And that the suffering that we endure gives us ample opportunity to derive greater meaning in our lives. Now, I'm not being idealistic about that, right? I know that that when you're in the moment, right, and sometimes that moment can be years, but that perpetual fight, that journey becomes worth it when, when we're able to catalyze that true transformative process. And because of that, you know, truly, I, I, I'm fortunate that all of this has happened and that I'm in the position that I am today, as hard as that can seem sometimes, right? Josh, I just want to recognize your sacrifice and and that of your family and uh, especially uh, the loss of of Staff Sergeant Harper and his family. I can't even imagine what that level of pain is like. And, you know, I I get it. I've had pain too. So we're, we're common like that, but there is a difference. And so I think all too often, uh, we American civilians want to want to thank somebody like you for your service, and we don't even understand the depth of sacrifices that go on even today, especially for the family members of those left behind and when you leave a brother in arms behind. So thank you, Josh, for your time. And um, if you've got anything else that you, you – any word of encouragement or anything that you would like reboots listeners to act upon to maybe help uh, a service member or a first responder. I'd love to hear that from you. Well, I really appreciate that, Tracy. Thank you. If you are interested in, in picking up the book, you can get it at Amazon. It's, it's the beauty of a darker soul. We've been very fortunate to get a lot of just incredibly positive feedback on that book and the way that it, it, it's impacting people's lives. So it was written very intentionally to be approachable. And, and if you do pick it up, you know, my biggest recommendation is to read it through your own lens, find ways to apply it through your own lives and use it to generate discussions around the dinner table, you know, use it to generate discussions with your friends and coworkers where, where appropriate. 
discussing these things and bringing them into the forefront is where we're really going to start to change the paradigm. I'll close by saying this, you know, I, I really, these moral wounds are so complex and I, I often describe shame and guilt as a form of cancer. In the beginning, you know, you're at stage one, it infects the deepest, darkest corners of your soul, but you don't really feel the impact that it's having on your overall body and, and emotional state, right? But over time, as it as it remains unresolved and as it continues to grow, suddenly we're in stage four and we're in crisis and we don't know why. But the positive news is that, that shame and guilt do have a profound weakness and that weakness begins by shining light upon them. You know, once you recognize it, you can't put that back in the door. So by by seeking to validate ourselves and, and validate the experience of others is, is sometimes our, our biggest weapon in defense of these things, right? There's nothing more powerful than the power of human connection. Thanks again, Josh. Thank you. I appreciate it. Josh's story is about so much more than his back to the dead experience, isn't it? An accomplished entrepreneur, Josh represents every warrior who has come home to launch new businesses and lead companies and brands into new ways of leading and serving. As a public speaker who has not only experienced trauma, but continuously studies the neurological and psychological impacts of trauma, Josh shows us that creativity is essential for disrupting the experiences in our past that haunt us. Now, in the show notes, you're going to find links to Josh's TED Talk, his business bio, and his books, as well as a link to the death announcement of Josh's friend, Staff Sergeant Marlon Harper, who was killed in the line of duty the day Josh died for 15 minutes. Plus, we're going to link you up with our featured veteran from last November, an old and dear friend, Shane Dietert. And finally, if you don't want to miss another episode of the Reboots Podcast, and if you're interested in navigating change in your own life, check out rebootspodcast.com forward slash change. You sign up and I'll send you a couple of my favorite daily habits that help me adjust to change or help me make change that I want to affect in my life. You're going to find the show notes for this episode at rebootspodcast.com forward slash episode three four. I'm Tracy Winchell. We'll see you next time. Reboots Rough Cuts are edited, mixed, and mastered by my friend Mikhail Kozenkoff. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode, it's because Mikhail offered to help me clear the interview backlog from the Reboots Vault. Mikhail manages ChristianAudioDebates.com, and it's a website devoted to turning into podcasts, scholarly debates between Christian apologists and atheists, skeptics, Muslims, etc. Now, if you're a podcaster who's overwhelmed with post-production, or maybe you're not sure how to edit your own podcast and you want a personal step-by-step walk through the editing and mixing process, or maybe you just want your podcast to sound the very best it can and not have to worry about editing at all, in any of those three instances, Mikhail is your guy. 
podcastsoundfixer at gmail.com is how you can get in touch with him. Thank you, Mikhail, for your generosity, for your expertise, and for just being such an incredible encourager. I'm Tracy Winchell, Dale Valente. We hope this episode has helped you in some way. If so, we'd love to hear from you. Maybe someone you care about might benefit from the Reboots podcast. It's easy to share from our website, rebootspodcast.com. The Reboots Podcast is a production of Winchell Storyworks Incorporated, a company dedicated to helping businesses and individuals know, share, and live their stories in order to impact the world around us in a positive way and to achieve financial freedom. 